Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Rise and Fall, based out of our study on the first four chapters of First Samuel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. This morning we're going to be in First Samuel chapter 1, verse 20, and we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 12. If you missed last week, we started a new series, which we're calling um, Rise and Fall. And basically the premise of the series is um, one commentator said that as you read the book of 1 Samuel, you ought to imagine the narrative, the plot line, to be two big X's over the book. And as you read the first couple chapters, we're watching Eli the priest and his family fall. They are going to lose their influence. They're going to be taken out of a place of authority. And then simultaneously, as we're reading the narrative, we're also reading about the rise of Samuel. And Samuel's going to be this great prophet um, known for his prophetic anointing all throughout history. They say the same of the second half. You read about the fall of Saul as you read about the rise of David. So two kind of big X's, if that makes sense. So we're calling our series um, Rise and Fall. Let me pray over the word this morning and and we'll jump right in. Lord, we're so... um, expectant this morning. We are a house that loves your word. We deeply love the word of God. We believe it to be fully inspired, inerrant. We believe it cuts our hearts. Lord, scripture says that your word is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing between joint and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Your word is sharp to us this morning, and we honor its ability to cut, to trim. Shape us, God, Lord, if there's sin in our hearts that's hindering us from seeing your kingdom come in fullness, cut it away today. Cut it away today. We honor you. Speak, God, speak, we pray. Guard my lips, Lord. Guard my lips, Jesus. In your name, amen, amen. Last week, we talked a lot about the the kind of narrative line of the book of First Samuel. So by way of introduction this morning, I want to take just a moment to make sure we understand the historical setting, the historical context. I want to just take a couple minutes to ex- make sure we're really clear about where we are in history so we kind of have a context for wh- what we're reading. The book of First Samuel, it lies um, in what is called the period of the judges. Um, so it's after the conquest of Canaan, so after Israel comes into the promised land, but it's before um, Saul is anointed to be the first king. So there's this period bet- between the conquest and the first king, the, the monarchy to be established, which is called the period of the judges. And that's really where we're going to pick up and read. Now Samuel, who's our primary character that we're going to be reading about and studying, he's going to be the last judge. He's also the prophet to anoint the first king. So we're right at that transition period. We're, we're transitioning between the period of the judges and the um, period of the kings. So in our last series, we were studying the Babylonian captivity. Remember, we studied Daniel. We talked a lot about Jeremiah. And we've actually gone back in time some 500 years. Remember, we kept looking at the book of Jeremiah. And it's um, in Jeremiah 15.1 that the Lord says this to Jeremiah. Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. 
And God's saying to Jeremiah that even if the great prophets of old, even if the great intercessors, Moses, and then in God's heart, he honors Samuel as a prophet in the likeness of Moses. Even if Moses and Samuel stood and interceded before me, I would not um, withhold this judgment from Israel. He's talking about bringing um, the captives into Babylon, what Daniel experienced. Even if the great men of God, the great men of God of old, Moses and Samuel, they couldn't deter the judgment to come. It's kind of quite a compliment the Lord throws Samuel's way. And as we talk about the rise of this great man of God, spiritual leader, anointed prophet, judge of righteousness, I want you to just kind of store away in your heart that God um, puts him beside Moses as he speaks. But to fully grasp all that's going on in First Samuel, we need to remind everyone, tap your head, we need to remind ourselves what goes on in the period of the judges. You know you got to do that every now and then when you're reading. you got to just say, wake up, wake up, remember. There's a thematic cycle that runs through the book of Judges, and the line, I think I pulled Judges 17.6 for you, but it's the same line as repeated, um, that, that kind of lays the secular pattern of judges is this. In in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the repetitive theme of judges. It's actually a pretty good description of the direction our society has turned as well. I think that everyone does what is right in his own eyes. It's really a pretty good description of the relativism that fills our universities or the suggestion that all people should live however they see fit and you should just fulfill whatever desire you have. You get to make up for yourself what's true and what's not true. There's a plethora of truths. Pick a truth. No truth is absolute. We haven't thought through the fact that no truth is absolute is an absolute statement, therefore self-defeating. We're going to work on that one of these days. As people of God, we still believe the scripture. We still believe the word of God tells us what truth is. And it dictates to us what is righteous and what is not righteous. It provides an absolute moral standard. But in Samuel's day, there is no absolute moral standard. There's upheaval. There's um, chaos morally. Now, when Israel, in, in the book of Judges, here's the pattern, when Israel would go down this path of rebellion, of everyone just do whatever seems fit to you, God would remove his hand of protection from the people of Israel and allow them to begin to experience hardship. Neighboring nations would begin to bring persecution. Um, remember the Midianites and the Philistines would try to raid the land. And we don't have a ton of extra biblical information about this time period, but we do have what's called the Merneptah steel, sometimes called the Israel steel. And it tells of Merneptah, who is an Egyptian pharaoh. Um, it kind of gives a list of his conquest and of his victories. Will you give me that picture? I'll show it to you. And so this is the, an artifact that's been found from, from the period of Judges, or close, really, really close to our text today. And this is a long list of all the peoples that Merneptah has conquered. And if you see the point that's highlighted right tucked in there, it says that he conquered the, the people of Israel. And it, the English translation says this, um, that Israel has been laid to waste and Israel's seed is no more. I think this Pharaoh was a little bit arrogant and God would never allow Jacob's seed to be totally demolished. But what we do learn from this text is that Israel, from this extra biblical artifact is that 
like the scriptures say, in this period of the judges, Israel is constantly contending with neighboring nations. And it seems that as they battled with Merneptah, they lost a devastating defeat. So the pattern of the period of Judges is this. As the people begin to suffer because of their rebellion, they begin to pray. And the people will cry out and they'll repent and they'll fast. And God will send what Scripture calls a judge. Now, the term judge in English doesn't fully explain what the Scripture means by the term judge. The the judge in the Old Testament, he would be a person who established righteousness. He would mostly, he or she, don't forget Deborah, she's in there. Um, they, the judge would have a prophetic anointing. They would proclaim the truth and the word of God, but almost always judges would also be military leaders. So we have Gideon, remember, hiding in the wine press from the Midianites. And God comes and the angel of the Lord tells him that he's a great man of valor. You remember this? Um, and he ends up leading 300 men to conquer thousands. But the, but the judge is a man who brings the people of God to repentance, but he's also a man that leads them into battle. So the idea is that the judge brings justice. So justice meaning he delivers them from oppression, delivers them from um, persecution. Remember, Samson is called a judge, slays a thousand Philistines with the jaw of a donkey. I could do that too, just so you know. Don't try me. I get my donkey bone out and show you what's up. I'm about to make a shank. But the pattern is, again, secular. And as soon as Israel gets a glimpse, a moment of relief, as soon as the pressure is removed and they have peace, they slowly start to slip back into their sin. They have a bad case of what we call short-term memory loss. And they're right back where they started. They want God when they're in trouble, but they want their sin when things are going smoothly. And there is a principle there for you and I. God is not satisfied with fire insurance faith. He's not satisfied with those who only come calling when the repo man comes calling. He's, he's, not, after, he's not after a one-night stand kind of faith when you're feeling lonely. But our God is after passionate, daily, laid-down lovers who are consecrated, commit, committed people of of covenant. He wants daily intimacy with us, not just intimacy when the so proverbial poop is hitting the fan, so to speak. I'm really, if you guys could help me in this prayer, I'm really praying and interceding and asking God to allow me to preach one sermon without poop coming up. So if you could, if you could stand with me in faith, seriously, I'm a little embarrassed that it constantly comes out, but it's such a part of my life with the diapers, you know, that... Our prayer team that put that on your list, Caleb, needs to learn to preach without talking about the potty. So this is the context that Samuel's born into. And Eli is called a current judge. Eli is called the judge. Remember Eli the priest that we're reading about? He's called judge. Um, but the people we know are not repentant. Under this judge, the people are not living righteously. The text will tell us that Eli's sons are serving as priests. So um, do you remember in the Levitical law, once a man passes a certain age, he's no longer to serve as a priest. And that's kind of to honor the, the elders because priests were almost just butchers, man. They're just slaughtering animals all day long, um, which would make me vomit, by the way. Um, 
So Eli is still called a priest, but he's not a functioning priest. He's past that age, and he sits in the temple. His sons are functioning priests, and the passage will tell us that they are wicked. Our scripture today will tell us that they did not know God at all. And so what happens what's at the end of our series, I'm sorry I'm jumping through through the passage, but you've, you know this story. What will happen is um, Israel will be at battle with the Philistines, and uh, Eli's sons will grab the Ark of the Covenant and go running to battle as if they're going to save the day, and God will allow them to be violently murdered, and the Ark of the Covenant will be robbed, taken from Israel, because cause grabbing that Ark and running into battle and, and, and thinking somehow that by carrying the presents in the box over to the battle, somehow that's going to substitute for, for anointing, because they were not anointed judges. They were not anointed men of God to lead his people. So they try to substitute by grabbing the holy thing, carrying it in. But in reality, the judges that God uses are people of righteousness, and they are not men of righteousness. The judges that God uses are people of prophetic anointing, and there is no anointing on the lives of Eli's sons. And so we know that Israel is in rebellion because in just a few chapters, they'll go to battle with, with the Philistines, and God will let them be utterly destroyed. So it's a perfectly logical conclusion to conclude that when we pick up in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, the people of Israel are living in rebellion. So during this precise moment in history when Hannah conceives, remember, if you again, if you weren't here last week or you're not familiar with the story, Hannah is barren for years. I think, again, we can conclude that at least 10 years, if not much longer, Hannah has not been able to conceive a son, which is so important in her cultural context. Giving your husband an heir is incredibly important, but she's barren, and so she goes to the house of God, and she's weeping and praying and fasting and asking God to give her a son. And Eli, the priest, after accusing her of being drunk, tells her to get up and go on her way because God has heard her, her prayer. And we're confident that in Hannah's day, there's a type of religious activity that's going on. But the people are rebellious, not faithful. They've forsaken God. And there's a big thought here that I want to try to approach today. And it may even be too lofty of a thought for me to communicate well. But the thought is this, that Hannah is barren. In this season of rebellion, Hannah is barren. But in the eyes of God, Israel is barren. And Hannah is broken and she has no son and she cries out to God for one. But in the bigger picture, in the eyes of God, Israel has no judge and has no anointed son. There is no anointed man of God leading the people. Israel is barren and Israel has no young man of God anointed rising up to lead the people. And in one sense, she's a desperate mother crying for a baby. But in a prophetic imagery sense, in a, in a, sometimes in Scripture we talk about types. In a, in, a, in a type sense, she is Israel in her barrenness crying out for a righteous leader to come to pass. And she's saying, God, I will consecrate this baby to you. Not a razor will touch his head. Wine, alcohol will not touch his lips. She's saying, I'll make sure that he is a Nazarite fully committed to you from the day of his birth. That he will be consecrated unto you. And, and, and I don't even know that she's fully aware that there is not a man in Israel who is fully consecrated to God. There is not a man in, of this day who's fully committed. And God uses her prayer for a son, and God says, That is my intercession. From this 
cosmic sense, this is a prayer for a righteous leader to be born and to rise up out of barren Israel. So there's this prophetic picture that we're playing with it as well. She says, give me a son. I'll tell him of your goodness. I'll spur him on to walk in faithfulness and truth. I'll spur him on to live totally consecrated and totally committed Henry Varley was a British revivalist um, who, was, who, who said this in one meeting. The world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And D.L. Moody was sitting in the room, heard him make this comment. And they say D.L. Moody mumbled under his breath, by God's grace, I'll be that man. And D.L. Moody had a fifth grade education, which makes him not very articulate. Um, but God absolutely used him to save thousands and thousands and thousands of people because God doesn't necessarily need gifting or charisma. What God is after is consecration. What God's after is commitment. What God's after is a person who will walk in righteousness with their heart fully in love with him. And God can use a fifth grade education to shake the nations if the fifth grade education's heart's committed to him. And this is what Hannah is saying. I'll give you a son who will be totally committed to you. I'll make sure of it. Sometimes a mama can do it with a belt, a paddle, and some good discipline. She can, she can make it happen. Eli is the spiritual head of Israel at this moment. And I'm sure he has his strengths and weakness. I don't think he's totally wicked, although I, I'm sure that his sons were. But his leadership is decrepit. And the people are slowly straying away from God. And he doesn't seem to have any motivation or zeal or kind of prophetic passion to call the people home. And so Hannah's crying out for a son. But in the prophetic picture, she's crying out for a prophet. And she's going to be ecstatic when God allows her to carry a baby boy. But from heaven's perspective, she's carrying the intercessor like Moses, faithful man of God, who will prophesy with accuracy and pour the oil of God over David's head, the one who the Messiah Jesus would come from. And I think she is mostly, this is my suspicion, I think she's mostly unaware of how significant this baby really is. I think she's the mother of Moses, carrying the one who will bring deliverance. I think she's Elizabeth Barron in her old age, carrying the forerunner, John the Baptist, who will pave the way. She thinks God has brought her to a place of brokenness to receive her breakthrough, to finally have a child. And he has. He is that good father. But he's also using her brokenhearted prayers to fulfill the plans of heaven. So let's pick up in 1 Samuel 1. We're going to read again through chapter 2, verse 12. And I want to just try to tie some thoughts and help us land at one big conclusion. So 1 Samuel 1, I'm going to start in verse 20 just to kind of remind us where we are. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. 
And they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And he said, oh, my Lord, she says to Eli, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For There's no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boar was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And I added to verse 12 again just to draw contrast that we're going to dig into. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. So Hannah has her promised baby. Soon after Eli told her to get up and go on her way because God had heard her prayer. If she has, if when she makes it home from Shiloh, Shiloh is about 20 miles away from where they live, from Ramah. If she makes it home from Shiloh and conceives quickly and she carries the baby for full term for nine months, then when Elkanah comes around a year he comes the same time every year to offer a sacrifice when it's time for him to go next year to offer the sacrifice we can assume that the baby is maybe two months three months old maybe even younger the baby's just a newborn and she's not prepared to travel with her newborn she's a first-time mom she's got to go to the er at least eight times a month and nobody's touching that baby until they take a full bath and hand sanitizer you got to bathe with it She's got that mother's instinct flowing. She's, can you imagine her saying to her husband, no, I'm not going up yet. I'm not letting this baby touch all them germs. She's also, she's very sure that this baby belongs to the Lord. And she tells her husband, not yet. She's thought through the appropriate action. She's considered, she's planned. She's going to wean the baby. Let that immune system get strong. Let that baby's health kind of shore up. No, not yet. We're not going to the house of the Lord. Yet I have a responsibility as a mother to nurse this child. And for a season, I think she held that baby and prayed. For a season, I think she sang to that baby about the goodness of God. I think, uh, I thought this week of Moses's biological mother weaning. Remember, remember she's nursing Moses unbeknownst to the Pharaoh's daughter. Um, and I think of Moses's biological mother nursing him and, and whispering in his ear, you're called of God. You are anointed. You are a son of Israel. I think she spoke life into that little baby's ear. And I 
think Hannah's doing the same thing. She's holding that baby that she'll soon have to leave at the house of God. And she's declaring destiny and purpose over his life. I think she bathes that baby in prayer, whispers in his ear, you're called, you're anointed, you'll be used. And then we find her committed to keep her vow. She's getting ready to take, she, she does in our passage, take Samuel to the house of the Lord. And I, as I thought this week, I thought, how hard would it be for a mother who's been barren for years to leave her child in the care of another? There's an apocryphal text, um, a, a, a book that we don't, it's not in the Bible, but a book from that time period um, where a Jewish mother says to um says to her son something like, how dare you talk to me that way? I nursed you for three years. Um, and so scholars often conclude that a weaning a child in this day and age meant that the baby might have been three years old. Some scholars say the baby could have been as old as five. Um, but, but somewhere around there, Daniel's something like three to five years old. I wanted you to just consider that she is really trusting God. Do you, do you, I know that you who have babies, have kids, grandkids, you understand how how big of a step that is to trust God with the, with the thing that is most precious to you. In some sense, she and Elkanah are Abraham putting Isaac on the altar. In some sense, they are saying, God, we trust you even with this, even with the deepest desire of our heart. And remember that culturally, no one else is serving God in this hour. Nobody else is going to the temple year after year. And there is no one else still following the law. There is no one else still praying. We know that the people of Israel are going after whatever God they seem fit. And they're living however they want to live. And I think her neighbors are stunned. I think they're saying, you finally got a baby and you're going to take that baby where? You're going to leave that baby with who? I think she had some relatives that quit following the Lord years ago and said, why in the world are you going to take that baby to Eli the priest and his sons, who everybody knows is wicked? Why would you do that? You need to take your baby and you need to move on. And I wonder the thoughts that flooded through Hannah's mind. They've made sacrifices every year. They've always honored the Lord. They've prayed, given financially. Why not let this one thing slide? Surely God wants me to be happy. Surely God wants me blessed. Why not just keep the baby and let this one thing slide? And in comparison with everyone else, no one else is doing anything. At least we're doing something. Why not just keep this baby? Why not just hold on? And I think this may be one of the most subtle deceptions for believers in our hour. This deception of we've gone to church and we serve and we give. Why not just live in a little bit of rebellion? God asks you to pray for someone every morning or God asks you to give to this project or God is calling you to serve in the church and you're just pushing it to the back of your mind. You're like, I do everything else. I do. I've, I've done way more than my neighbors do. They don't even get up and go to church at least I'm doing something surely I can afford to live in just a little bit of rebellion it's justified disobedience 
And what you actually do is you talk yourself into staleness. And anytime, this is, a, again, a big thought, but I think it to be true. Anytime you begin to justify your disobedience by comparing yourself to someone else, you can be sure that you've officially slipped into a religious spirit. You have been ensnared by a religious mindset. And what you're doing is you're saying, I'm better than everyone else, therefore I can afford to live stale. And, and I think, I think I'm right about this, I think that the religious mindset, the religious spirit, we, we, we often think of the religious spirit as causing someone to become condemning, to walk in a spirit of condemnation, and it does. But sometimes I think the goal of the religious spirit is to get you to a place where you look around at everybody else, start condemning them, but in reality you're condemning them to justify your own staleness. And the goal of the religious spirit might actually be to get you to live stale. Because God's not after the look around at everybody else and see what everybody else is doing. What God is after is for you to daily get up and try to hear his voice and just simple obedience, simple daily obedience. And when he asks you to pick up the phone and call somebody and encourage them, it's not, well, I went to church yesterday, so I don't have to do that. God's not into that kind of relationship. He just wants daily pick up the phone and call. He just wants you to walk. And, and the religious spirit actually it leads you to staleness and robs you of intimacy. And our goal as a house is to be very, very intimate with the Holy Spirit. Us as a church, for us, we need, we desperately need intimacy with the Holy Ghost. Somebody say hallelujah. That's what we're after. Hannah says, no, I'm not going to let my heart get stale. Yes, we've gone through all the motions. Yes, we've tied. Yes, we've given. Yes, we've gone to the altar year after year. But I'm a woman who keeps my word. And I'm a woman of daily, systematic obedience and the little things. Simple obedience. Simple obedience. She doesn't go there. She's given her word. She's a woman of conviction. This baby belongs to the Lord. This baby is dedicated to his service. And justified disobedience is disobedience. And that ain't an option. And how could she possibly disobey this God who has been so good to her? So she comes with a sacrifice, wine, flour, ready to honor the Lord and dedicate her son to his house. And this is the day she's thought about for years now. For years, she's rocked this little baby, fed this little baby, prayed over this little baby. And she knows that one day God's calling her to leave that baby in the house of God. You know, there's a special connection between a mama and her little boy. We don't know anything about that because we could have 400 kids and they'd all be girls at our house. Um, they just keep coming. The estrogen flows, man, it flows. I think she's wiping tears away as she makes her way down to Shiloh. This is a day of celebration. She's celebrating the fact that she has had a son, and this son is called and chosen of the Lord. This is a day of celebration, but in the same sense, this is a day of mourning. She'll no longer be able to get up in the middle of the night and make sure that baby's breathing. She'll miss pieces of his childhood. She will see her coming to visit Samuel year after year. She brings him a new cloak that she hands makes. I think she still prays for him every day, but she doesn't get to look in his eyes and see him giggle and do the things that little boys do. I don't get to see that either. But to Hannah, this is what I want, want you to hear. It's not enough to make a vow to the Lord in your brokenness and forget about the Lord in your fruitfulness. No, that's what Israel does. 
over and over. They vow to serve the Lord in the brokenness. God comes in and delivers them. And then they go on living in rebellion. Hannah says, this is what our people always do. We always cry out when we're broken. And then when we're fruitful, we quit. And she says, not me, not my house. We will serve the Lord in our brokenness. And we will serve the Lord in our fruitfulness. He is the God of my heart day in and day out. In the mountains and in the valleys, we're going to serve God. It's not enough just to vow to God in your brokenness. And forget him in your fruitfulness. No, her theology is much richer than that. We see her in the song of praise that she has a thorough understanding of his nature, his power, his goodness. She says, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no rock like our God. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and it is established. The earth is established on his pillars. She says, God will cut off the wicked ones. She knows better than to abandon him now. She's in relationship. She has an agreement. God's honored his word. She intends to honor her word. And she is going to bring her best, her deepest treasure, her life's joy. The the, the thing that brings her the most sense of fulfillment and purpose. This thing that she has poured the last three to five years of her life out stewarding and taking care of. Her best, man. She's going to bring her best to the temple and say, you're worthy, God. Because that's what thankfulness does. Thankfulness responds to God's goodness with total abandon. Are you thankful that he turned your mourning into dancing? Have you responded to God's great goodness with real worship? Have you given God the deepest parts of you? Do you live for his kingdom and for his kingdom alone? Are you really serving his body? Are you really desperate for people to come and see his goodness? Have you responded to the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary? Have you responded to it with sacrificial living, total abandoned, loving, serving, intimate, heart burning passion for Jesus? If you do, and I'm saying this to me, if I do not live abandoned to the things of God, then you can rightfully conclude that I am not thankful. Because the thankful for the cross of Jesus respond with total commitment. And that's really what God's after. He's given us his best. And he intends that we give him our best. That's the kind of life I want to live by God's grace. If I don't live it, you have the right to choke me out, put me in a choke cold, slam me down. I'm back on WWF. Forgive me. I don't know how we got there again. Are you thankful he washed you this morning? Do you come to the house of God with your best With your deepest desire. Are you the woman breaking her most precious oil on the feet of Jesus. Because she realizes how good he is. Is that the kind of life you live? I want to say with the old Moravian missionaries. He's worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. And I want to give all of my life to ensure that he does. I want us to be a body that bless him, even when it's uncommon and unpopular, that we're still spending time in worship and exalting him and declaring his goodness. I want us to give God our best for the cause of Christ. I want to enter the gates of heaven one day and see hundreds, even thousands of people from our community who get the glance on the goodness of Jesus because we served him faithfully. God used us because we were committed
And even on this day of loss, she raises her voice in praise. She brings her sacrifice joyfully. When Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, you remember John the Baptist leaps in Mary's womb, and, or leaps in um, Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth says to Mary, Blessed is she who has believed that God will fulfill his promises to her. And Mary responds with a song that's called the Magnificent. It's a song of praise. And Mary's song largely reflects Hannah's. Mary is working off of Hannah's song that she's just given us. I'm going to wrap this up quickly. I know I'm like rambling on at you today, but ultimately what I'm trying to say is this, that Hannah is thankful. Hannah brings sacrifice. Hannah is committed. She takes care of that baby, prays for that baby. She's obedient. She's simple. She's a simple obedience kind of woman. She's just trying to keep her vow to the Lord. She's just trying to live her little faithful life. She does not have a cosmic view. She does not have prophetic perspective. It's easy for us to read the story and realize that God is going to use Samuel in a way that one day he will, he will put Samuel's name next to Moses. She doesn't realize that this baby is the next Moses. She's just being simply obedient today. And I, I want to say to you this morning that God will use your simple obedience to do more than you could even imagine, man. God, God will take, God will take D.L. Moody, your fifth grade education, as long as you're consecrated and you think you're just being obedient today and God will do so much more than your mind could even fathom what God can do with a consecrated one. She's just being obedient. God's shaking history. She's just fulfilling her word and all of heaven is watching as God begins to pour his anointing out over this young baby. And I think, I, I think this is true. I think sometimes we think we're just showing up to church. I think we think we're just tithing because it's what believers do. You're just dragging your kids to church out of a sense of responsibility. And we teach small groups, lead small groups, do outreach because that's what kingdom people do. You pray for your friends, your family, your neighbors every morning because that's what Christians do. But I think God says that your simple acts of obedience, I will multiply and make incredibly fruitful. And you think you're just getting up and showing up to church and shaking somebody's hand and God says there are people in your community who feel totally unloved and I am using your little handshake and smile to make that person feel valued and loved and I think God says you think you're just teaching a small group but I am delivering people of bitterness and strongholds that they've lived under and for years and I think you think I'm just tithing because it's what I'm supposed to do and I think God says I'll take that money and I will use it to advance my kingdom in ways that you can't even imagine, man. And you're just being simply obedient and God in heaven is watching as God is making you so much more fruitful than you could ever imagine. Hannah does not know the end of this story. She does not have a cosmic perspective. She's being simply obedient. All of heaven watches. And I think it's the same for you. I think there's a day when we will stand before God and the simply obedient ones Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Say, when I was hungry, you fed me. And we'll say, when did we feed you? And he'll say, this day, this day, this day. When I was in prison, you visited me. When did I do that? I never visited you in prison. And God said, no, you were simply obedient. You did what I asked you to do every day. When I was thirsty, you gave me a cup of water. 
You thought you were just giving to some project to feed the poor because that's what Christians do. And God says, no, when you feed the poor, you have done it unto me. You've been simply obedient. And I will use that simple obedience to shake your community, to shake the lives and hearts of people who desperately need me. I will use your consecration. I think, again, God's saying, I don't need gifted, charismatic crazy intellectual leaders. I will use the fifth grade education with simple obedience to change the nation. Just be sim- you just be simply obedient. So in conclusion, this is quickly what I want to say. Hannah's just doing what she said she would. She's just being faithful to her word. God's doing more than she could have ever imagined. This morning, what kind of relationship do you have with God? Are you a person of daily intimacy, simple, one step at a time obedience, hear his voice and respond? Are you that kind of person or are you the person who leans back and says, I do more than everybody else? What kind of vows did you make to the Lord the day you met him? When you came to the altar or wherever you were, you were in your car and you were crying and you were confessing your sin. What vow did you mutter to him? Because if you're like me, I muttered, I'll live all of my life for you. And I didn't know any Christianese, but I'm thinking, I will serve you. I'll burn for you. What kind of vows did you make on that day? And do you still burn? Are you still serving? Does your heart still ache with thanksgiving? Are you still excited about the kingdom of God, man? Are you still passionate about the gospel? Are you still sharing the gospel when you're at work? How thankful are you that you're no longer bound by sin? Does your thankfulness produce this kind of simple obedience? And just for a moment, I won't do this too long. I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to speak, to reveal to you any area of your life where you're being disobedient. Lord, we lay our hearts open to you speak. Just for a moment, close your eyes. Extend your hands. Lord, if there's anything in me that's displeasing to you, point it out to me in this moment. God, we want you. We want intimacy with you. Speak, Holy Spirit. Are you thankful or have you forgotten your deliverance? Forgotten your breakthrough? Are you living complacent? Are your morning and and evenings marked with praise? Are you on to the next problem, the next crisis? And it goes from barren to fruitful, from being broken to being filled with praise. She's still leaning in. She leans into God in her defeat and she'll lean into God in her victory. This morning, if you're here and you haven't given your life to Jesus, we want to tell you that today is your day. Don't let what you did last night stop you from responding today. Yesterday's sins can be totally washed away with the precious and priceless blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus. 
Every one of us in this room have messed up. Every one of us in this room have made mistakes. We are living daily in intimacy with God. He's teaching us to walk in holiness. I'm telling you that today, all of your sins, all of your guilt can be totally washed away. The prophet says, thrown into the depths of the sea. You've been tormented by the things that you've done in the past. You lay in the bed at night regretting the things you've said, the people that you've offended. And God says, I'll remove that regret today. I'll cleanse your conscience. I'll adopt you into my family. Some of you have felt unloved for years. God says, if you'll give your life to me, you will feel and experience and know more love than you've ever even imagined. I will blow your mind with love, with my goodness. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.